Monday or Tuesday, I was out on a walk, and uh, some of you know my mentor, Hunter, and whenever when I was uh, at Valley View Nazarene as a youth pastor, we got a little bit of camaraderie, and it became aware to me most Christmas seasons that he did not like the Advent season. And he said the reason being is he was the guitar player and it was hard for him to do him Christmas hymns. And he said after you preach so many Advent sermon series, you feel like you have nothing new to offer. So I, of course, texted him. I said, are you all ready for Advent? And uh, he sent me a text back of a picture of his uh, outside garage, I think. Maybe it was a random picture he found on the Internet. And he said, this here is a picture of my Christmas tree. It's still in the garage because it's still November. <laughs> and uh, and then I, I said, well, what are you going to do next Sunday? And he says, last time I checked the calendar, Advent doesn't start till the 3rd. And I said, oh, <laughs> I was off. But I still felt like uh, I did want to start an examination uh, with Christmas in mind this Sunday. I felt the, the Holy Spirit direct me more to a, a feeling or an emotion Uh and I'm referring to the want or the need of the Messiah. Uh, really what we could say as the need for Christmas. People around the time of Christ's birth were primed and ready for a Savior. Uh, and we touched on the people around the time of Christ, or I should say we, we touched on the angst around Christ last week. We remember the outright intended coercion of wishing to make Jesus king um, because they were ready for salvation. They were ready for the hope he brings. And since this will be our theme for the next five weeks, I'm going to be hopping likely around the Christmas nativity story, and they're not going to be chronological. So, for example, Jesus is already born in the passage we're looking at this morning. I do invite you to turn to Luke 2, 25. And we'll be reading just 10 verses from there uh, for the context of our text. Again, this is after when Jesus is born. He's being presented at the temple. And we come across an old, devout man who comes in to see the newborn king. So that's where we're at. If you're able to stand, I do invite you to stand one more time. Sorry, this is yellow. I've tried and tried to make this normal colors, but I can't. So hopefully it's not going to make two things awkward to see. It's just the parchment, yeah. We read, Now there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Led by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and blessed God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother were amazed at what was spoken about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, Behold, this child is appointed to cause the rise and fall of many in Israel 
and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your soul as well. Let's pray. Father, a few moments ago in silence as I prayed the Lord's Prayer, it occurred to me that after we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The first thing we pray is forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And Father, if this passage shows me that there was a lot of anticipation about who you are, who the Messiah would be. But over and over you reveal the primary reason you came is to forgive us of our sins. And so I pray that as we reorient our focus this year around Christmas, that we would reorient on the severity of sin and how you have saved us from those sins. So, Father, we pray that you would be the one speaking, not myself. Have your way among us. Give us open and yielded hearts. Allow us to have the grace to change and to do and to be who you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So as you might know, Christmas comes from two terms put together, Christ, Mass, often the terms used in Catholic settings to describe the worship service. I remember there were many disagreements I seemed to have with the schooling I received as a pastor. And uh, one of the things I was taught, and I think this was hope to make pastors feel more relieved, unlike my pastor Hunter, whenever they have to come up with yet another Advent sermon series. I was taught by some professors, well, you know, preaching around Advent and Easter just needs to be Christocentric, meaning centered on Christ. And the part I disagreed with what it would seem to be implying, and that is there must be other times in the year where it doesn't have to be Christocentric. And uh, they would probably say, well, you know, as opposed to the times you might preach on prayer or maybe just on loving on one another, you know, some virtue. Well, I hope and pray and I, and I aim by God's grace and I always desire to preach on those virtues centered on Christ. You know, there is a need for Christmas. This world needs the worship of Christ by Christ's people and Christ is the answer for people looking for consolation. This text shows us, for today's purposes, I saw three things. Christ brings consolation. Christ should amaze us. And lastly, Christ exposes us. First, Christ brings consolation. But you know, it's one thing to read about Simeon. And he was looking for the consolation of Israel. But we must... Ask why. We should get into the emotions of the why. If you think 21st century America is dark, let me try my best to transport you back to 1st century A.D. First off, Israel is part of the Roman Empire. 
And though Rome tolerated Israel and their theocracy, the toleration of the Jews only went to an extent. A few decades before Christ, the ruler or the king over the Jews did a few favors for Rome, and then that marked a precedent to extend favors back to the Jews for them to have what was called a legal religion. And this kind of gave uh, Jews the power to be conscientious objectors on a few things, such as making sacrifices to the Roman gods or emperors. Caesar is above the local king of the Jews, but the local king is a guy named Herod. We discussed this in Sunday school, for those of you who were in that class, and history calls him Herod the Great. He might be a little bit more catchy and true to form if we called him Herod the Horrid. (laughs) He was a true Roman by nature. Herod is about as polarizing as many of the U.S. presidents have been. He came from the lineage of Esau. He claimed to be a Jewish worshiper, yet in all of his politics, he was thoroughly Roman. In fact, one of the sources I read says that under his reign he may have Romanized the Jewish culture more than any other king of the Jews. And in other words, we might say the American evangelical culture is increasingly secular, so the Jewish culture was increasingly Roman. Herod also killed his wife, he killed his kid, he drowned his nephew. We call this a serial killer today. But back then it was just because he was paranoid. He didn't want anyone to take his reign. You obviously... Read in Matthew that this is the guy who decides to wipe out all of Bethlehem's children for the hope of killing the one who might threaten his throne. This maniacal leader is in Jerusalem. He is Simeon's Jewish king. Furthermore, it's estimated that 50 million people were in the Roman Empire and maybe 4 million of those were Jews. 4 million is roughly a little less than the population of Oregon. In California, the most populous state doesn't have 50 million. They have closer to 40 million. Now, uh, I know it's different in a farm life, but for me, I've always envisioned that life is firstly at the home, and then you go out and you do work, and you come back, and then you live at home. Well, it was backwards in these days. You go out and you do work and then uh, you come back and maybe to sleep. That was maybe what your house was for, but everything else was outside. More than half of ancient Rome's wealth was concentrated on one or two percent of that was the nation's leaders themselves. In contrast, up to 70 percent, that would be where Mary and Joseph were in, they were struggling farmers working for a day's worth of currency called a denarius, which would then buy them food and leave them with very little left over. And still below that were 10% of more outcasts, and these were where the shepherds were, the same shepherds who saw the heavenly hosts. These were people prone to just starve or scrape by. Now, we Americans don't look forward to tax season. There was a heavy tax season, especially on the Jews. For the Jews... 10% went to priests and Levites or the elites in Jerusalem. Then another 10% went to the temple so they could put on festivals. And then still another 3.3 went to the poor. And these were all taxes on top of other taxes. 
such as sales taxes, customs, and annual tribute paid to the Roman government so the Rome can make bigger weapons and exploit more lands. Tax to Rome would also vary from about three weeks of earnings in a year or maybe up to 30% of all one's income. In other words, Jews probably paid half or more of their wages just in tax in some form. Conquered land. Some leaders are literally murderers, economic stressors. And it's in this setting, under these burdens, with this angst, that there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. Have you ever been there in some way, shape, or form? Simeon, living under notoriously ruthless, notoriously pagan, notoriously immoral, and explicitly corrupt empire, ruled by power-hungry, greedy, lying, deceitful, power-tripping rulers. He was looking for Israel's consolation. So much so, his whole life, it seems, was, was building into wanting to see him. He was promised he would see the Lord's Messiah. That was what his life was building into, seeing the Lord's Messiah. An end or a savior from the oppression he experienced daily. A salvation promised to his people for hundreds of years. The consolation of Israel. It's likely a concept in not only Simeon, but in many Jews' minds, that, in fact, we see that in verse 38 of the same chapter, that there were many looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. There's lots of Old Testament that point to this, but it's largely taken from Isaiah, who spoke of comfort, which Bill read for us. And the original word connected to consolation in the original language. Isaiah spoke of comfort in chapter 12, which we just studied, and I didn't plan it this way. But verse 1 there says, although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Do we remember what we said about this verse in Isaiah 12? That this was pointing to none other than Christ. And it's not that you or I have deflected God's anger. But it says, although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away. God's the only one acting. Paul writes memorably in Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as the atoning sacrifice through faith in His, Christ's, blood in order to demonstrate His righteousness because in His Forbearance, one translation says, in his divine restraint, he is passed over, or he is overlooked. He didn't act upon the sins committed beforehand. So whether Simeon knew it or not, he apparently only knew this, that the promised Messiah is the consolation of Israel, and Simeon was looking for this day in and day out. And the Holy Spirit, we read, was upon him. The Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. 
Simeon was not only looking towards this, but he had been promised that he would see it. Led, verse 27, led by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. I I seem to gather from my own faith and, and experience in reading the scriptures that God tends to operate with his people by leading them in faith, or blind faith, we might say. As he did Abram, who was told to up and leave his country on the promise of a homeland and descendants with no immediate revelation as to what that would look like. So I believe God may be operating in a second-by-second basis with Simeon. The Holy Spirit prompted Simeon to enter the temple one destined day. Did God tell him to enter the temple because this was the day? This is the day, Simeon, that I promised you? Or was it a more ordinary moment, a moment like many of us face, where there's that still small voice that prompts us to talk to someone at Costco? (laughs) To call that friend or to give a little extra to ministry. Whatever the case may be, whatever the Spirit revealed to Simeon initially as to why he must go to the temple, Simeon obeyed. Verse 27 And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and blessed God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. Traditionally, what Simeon is saying here is called the nunc dimittis, Latin for you now dismiss, the first part of his prayer. Verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. I wonder if, I don't wonder, I believe it is more, than just a declaration of an old, weary, fallen world, fallen world, battered man who's glad to be bowing out soon at the sight of Christ. Like, oh good, he's here, I'm done. I remember our friend John Pitts. He passed away in September 2020. And I remember thinking at the time, oh, only a half a year into this horrible, politically charged, upside-down COVID, and John gets to go home. That's a good thing. And I've often thought since then, every time an event happens, you know, the election that happened a month later, the situation on January 6th, deaths or, or situations in our church that followed, and I've wondered from time to time, You know, John would be, take your pick, amazed, upset, devastated. And so, just how we might think at times, that person passed away early, but he didn't have to experience X, Y, Z. So I wonder if we might wrongly take Simeon's prayer here as an old man who's just saying, I can now die knowing the world will be all right. And here we are, 2,000 years later, thinking about, pondering about all that's wrong with the world From then until now. Simeon had an inkling of what was to come of Jesus. We'll see that in a minute. But I also think this, that what Simeon is saying had and has more ramifications than just the comfort of his own soul. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people. We're part of that all people. And Simeon reveals how it's for all people this way. 
a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. A light for revelation to the Gentiles, that's non-Jews, those not born Jewish, not born in Israel. This is a, a common theme of Isaiah, that the coming Messiah would be a light for the nations. Isaiah 49 verse 6 says, I will also make you a light for the nations. In fact, some translations do put Gentiles there. To bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And we saw this last week, this this vivid illustration. Where Jesus shows up on the shores of the Decapolis. Which is a fancy Greek word for ten cities. Of the, the, the pagan. There's just this graveyard. There's a demonized man. There's pigs. Everything screams pagan, Gentile. And there's this vivid picture of what the Gentile world is outside of Jesus. Dark, depressing, oppressive. Until the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And this is what Jesus is, light in the darkness for everyone. I can promise you this, no matter your situation, no matter your equation, whatever you're dealing with, when does Jesus ever make things darker for you? When does his promise of life and salvation and holiness and justice and righteousness ever make it darker for you? Wonder if you believe this. Wonder if you really believe this, because here's how I set it up for you. Roman oppression, dark days, overtaxed, underfed, mistreated, corrupt leaders, corrupt rulers, sad old man who's been given hope, who's been told he'd see the Messiah, and the Spirit prompts him, go into the temple. And so here it is, here it is. Was was Simeon at first taken back as the Holy Spirit revealed to him? I brought you to the temple for... This baby. He is the Messiah. Was Simeon surprised? What was Simeon's blueprint for the Messiah? You know, you and I have our own blueprints. We know what we want our Messiah to do. We talked about this last week as well. Furthermore, look at, look at Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary are here with two turtle doves. Leviticus 12, 6-8 informs us that turtle doves are what people bring when they do not have the means to bring what is at first required for Mary's purification, which is a year-old male lamb. And so, this is the Messiah. What did Simeon think about this poor family and some baby? Well, we're told he went straight to prophesying. He accepted it. He found consolation. He knew that Christ is the light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon, we know, is going to be, in the big scheme of things, apparently one of the minority, the minority of Israelites who believe in their Savior as Jesus. Who believe in who Isaiah has been discussing is none other than Jesus, the glory of Israel. As Paul would write in Romans 9 about his 
own race, he says, the people of Israel, theirs is the adoption as sons. There's the divine glory and the covenants. There's the giving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them proceeds the human descent of Christ, who is God over all, forever worthy of praise. Amen. And Paul writes that in context of mourning the fact that they're not receiving him. Christ in the flesh came from Israel. He is their glory. And so all of this, light for the world, literally, the very glory of the nation of Israel, and this one little infant that Simeon, this old man now picks up, it's no wonder we read that the child's father and mother were amazed at what was spoken about him. I wonder how many of us are not there where Joseph and Mary are concerning what Simeon spoke about Christ. I, mo- I wonder how many of us are back where I op- opened with overtaxed, oppressed, naughty, gruesome rulers. And if we're honest with ourselves, brutally honest, I wonder if we wouldn't have been as faithful as Simeon to come in, take hold, prophesy. But rather we might ask, what can this baby do with our big problems? What can he do? Only this far removed, 2,000 years down the road, we're saying, what can Christ do with our problems today? What is this baby who came, this man who died, this one who is claimed risen, what can he do? Makes me think about Mary who was visited by an angel. We read, behold, you will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. I think about Joseph, who was also visited by an angel in the dream. It says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to embrace Mary as your wife, for the one conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Behold, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And after all this, not to mention the interesting visit by the shepherds who saw the heavenly host, that still must be on Joseph and Mary's mind, yet we see them hearing Simeon. The child's father and mother were amazed at what was being spoken about him. They could never hear too much about Jesus. They could never get comfortable or familiar or used to this stuff about Jesus. There's never a, oh yeah, I know he's special. Never a, let me guess, an angel visited you about our boy. No, rather they're amazed at what is spoken about him. I don't know if we're always there. I struggle with sermon writing if it gets repetitive because I, I guess I wonder, will I amaze? Who, will who I speak to be amazed about Christ? Because sometimes, unlike Joseph and Mary, I wonder if we do lose it. If there ever comes a time where, where the light of the world, the glory of Israel, the savior of all mankind, the master and sovereign of the universe, does he ever grow unworthy? Uninteresting? 
Do we ever think we can find something better? Do we ever claim to be wise but become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for anything, everything less satisfying? I don't know about you, but I'm afraid I do. And God forgive me when I do. Joseph and Mary were there for it all. They'd already encountered angels. They had dreams. But an old man comes in, states what Joseph and Mary might already know in some way, shape, or form, and they're still amazed at Christ. When not everyone is. Sometimes, God forgive us, not you, not me, sometimes... Christ lets us down. We talked about that last week. All these messianic expectations where Christ seems to be dodging. He doesn't become their king when they force him to be king. He doesn't save them from the Romans when he rides in on a donkey and they're crying out, save us now. The story of Simeon takes a slightly ominous turn. Picking it up in verse 34, Simeon blessed them. And said to his mother Mary, interesting that he now turns only to Mary. And five study Bibles as well as five commentaries I referred to had absolutely nothing to say about the significance of Luke's signaling, singling out Mary. My guess is that it's evident later in Jesus' life, whether it be Luke or John, who seems to address Jesus' immediate family mostly, Joseph is out of the picture. We don't know why, he's likely dead and for reasons then unknown as well. Anyway, Simeon says, Behold, this child is appointed to cause the rise and fall of many in Israel, and to a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your soul as well. And this is where I was about 8.30 last night, (laughs) thinking, How do I end this? And after I ended it, if I can just speak without my notes, so if you don't understand, that's why. I think it was because I was afraid of ending it, so it sounds like last week. I wanted something new. But the text gets to dictate where I finish. Many commentators say that Simeon is no doubt pointing to Isaiah yet again. A place like Isaiah 8:14, which speaks of the Messiah, and he will be a sanctuary, but to both houses of Israel, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, to the dwellers of Jerusalem, a trap and a snare. I mentioned a few moments ago, are we there overtaxed, oppressed, and what does Christ offer? Because that's where many in Jesus' lifetime were. Some wanting him to be king by force, some wanting him to save them from the oppressive Romans as he rode in on that donkey. Some of his disciples wanting him to restore Israel at least before you ascend. Rise and fall. Not what some expected. As the commentator Albert Barnes states, and this is in your bulletin too, it says, many expected a temporal prince. And in this they were disappointed. They loved darkness rather than light. They rejected him and fell unto destruction. Many that were proud were brought low by his preaching. 
They fell from the vain and giddy height of their own self-righteousness and were humbled before God. And then, through him, rose again to a better righteousness and to better hopes. The nation also rejected him and put him to death. And as a judgment, fell into the hands of the Romans. Thousands were led into captivity and thousands perished. The nation rushed into ruin. The temple was destroyed and the people were scattered into all the nations. When we say that Christ is the Messiah, and when we say that that some were looking for consolation, the kind of consolation they were looking for isn't always what Christ brought. He didn't bring freedom in the physical, political sense, rather a freedom of a much greater sense. Freedom from sin. Freedom from the bondage of evil. And so while some fall at Christ, stumble over him as an offense, others rise, others receive what he has to offer, and they say, this is better. While some wanted a political ruler and were unwilling to accept any other, you know, there are other stories that show us what Christ was here for. See, it seems like if we're not begging Christ to heal our land from the political evils, sometimes we're begging him to heal our illnesses, right? We hear it most Sundays during prayer time, and there's great precedence for that in the Bible. Stories where Christ does heal. Don't hear me wrong. But I, I love that story. I love the words chosen when those four friends lower a paralytic through the roof because the house that Jesus was at was so packed. I imagine people pouring out through the doorways, peeking in through the windows, and this paralytic is lowered. You know, I'm sure he is looking for consolation. But what does Jesus say after he is lowered? It is not, you are healed, right? Those aren't the words that come out of Jesus' mouth. Matthew, Mark, and our author we're looking at today, Luke, they all record the story, and all of them agree. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Don't miss this, because this is it. What did the angel say to Joseph? She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from that evil empire. No. From those horrible illnesses. No. From their sins. This is what Jesus brings. It's what he's here for. But it's still the same thing to this day, is it not? Give me kingdoms, give me healing. Sins are small things. I'll just say it, we're a dumb people if we think this way. What do we think causes corrupt kingdoms to make us want better ones? Sinful people. And really, some of the things we want healing from, I wonder if we weren't so good at gluttony if we weren't so effective at intoxication that we wouldn't have some of those health problems to begin with. God has diagnosed the world already for what ails it, and it has always been disobedience. It has always been sin, and Christ has come to save us from that. And not everybody sees it that way, and not everybody cares. The thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Some are still rising and falling when it comes to Christ. What are you doing? You know, I wonder if in some ways, like Simeon, 
You've been a person on a mission most of your life. You've wanted consolation. Some sort of deep consolation. You've never been able to pinpoint consolation when it comes to a dark, broken, crooked world where injustice happens. Consolation from internal despair that never lightens. Consolation. You've been looking for it. And what Simeon reveals at the end here is that there are some like him who will come to Christ and though he be a baby and though his parents poor and though this does not look like David in armor with a dead giant on his resume, this is still David the runt sheep herder who dad was trying to hide. Simeon will take him. Simeon will take God at his word. This is the Messiah. But what Simeon reveals is that not everyone will be like Simeon. There will be those who reject Christ because Christ doesn't look like what you or I want him to look like. But friends, he is the only place where there is consolation. He is the only place where there is hope. He is the only place where my sins and your sins are forgiven. And friends, our sins are serious. Our sins are many. And without forgiveness, you or I will never find consolation. I know some will not believe it. Simeon knew it too. But it is my urgent prayer and my true genuine hope that this sanctuary is filled with genuine hearts of belief, willing to receive what Christ offers, not force him to offer something else instead. For all those looking for consolation, one need not look any further than Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do look forward to what your word tells us about a new heavens and a new earth, a new kingdom than the kingdoms of this world. But let us not overlook the fact that you offer a kingdom now, a spiritual reality found in Christ And you remind us over and over as we look through the gospel accounts, there is nothing more serious than the forgiveness of our own sins. And that is what you have come to accomplish. Forgive us whenever we are so despairing because you're not filling what our view of what you should do. Rather, help us to always refocus our hearts on what you say in your word. What you say is important because we will find consolation in what you bring to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, forgiving us of our sins. You told Joseph from the get-go, call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came and whenever you were dying for our sins, you said it is finished. You accomplished what you came for. And what you accomplished is still the most sobering and serious and significant thing today. Help us to be spreading your message of consolation and forgiveness of sins through Jesus. Father, we love you and we thank you. We ask that you would see us home safely and help us to be obedient in not only receiving your forgiveness and your consolation, but also sharing that to one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.